Welcome to the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. We hope you find this episode helpful and informative. And of course, we have other episodes on our Podbean podcast page and our YouTube page for the video version. And our website has a host of other resources at multifaithmatters.org. And we encourage you to stop by there. And of course, uh, keep in mind that we are a nonprofit organization. And if you find the website and the work of Multi-Faith Matters helpful, as we try to tackle some of the most important social and cultural issues of our day as informed by religion, and as we try to uh, model respectful conversations through deep religious difference, if you find all of that helpful and would like to help support this work, uh, please consider visiting our patrons page where you can be a regular online supporter through as little as one, three, or $5 a month. Or, of course, uh, our, you can make a one-time donation through uh, our website, again, at multifaithmatters.org. Hope you enjoy the following conversation. Thank you for watching and listening. This is the Multifaith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the podcast for Multifaith Matters. I'm the host, John Moorhead, and my uh, guest today is Asma Uden. And I'm going to read the bio from her uh, great book that we're going to be discussing today, The Politics of Vulnerability, Today's Threat to Religion and Religious Freedom. It says that she is a religious liberty lawyer who has worked on cases at the U.S. Supreme Court. She is the author of When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom, a fellow with the Aspen Institute's Inclusive America Project and the founding editor-in-chief of alt, uh, oh my goodness, altmuslimima.com. I'll put all this information in the podcast notes. Asma was an executive producer for the Emmy and Peabody-nominated docuseries, The Secret Life of Muslims. She has written for the New York Times, The Washington Post, and USA Today, and she lives in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. Well, thank you for making some time. I think your uh, your book is an intriguing one and one we definitely uh, need to hear about. And I'm intrigued to kind of unpack some of it for us. Um, as we begin our conversation, can you share a little bit of your story and the work that you do in religious freedom? Sure. So I am a religious liberty lawyer, advocate, now writer and um, speaker on all things religious freedom for a long time. It uh, that also included international religious freedom, and these days it's mostly domestic focused. Um, been doing this for a little over a decade, and I uh, did most of my work at a law firm that focuses solely on religious freedom claims brought by a variety of religious groups, everyone from conservative Christians to Muslims to the Sikh Americans to the to, uh, to, to Jewish prisoners, for example. Um, and, and everything else, um, Centurions even, Centurion and their, their practice of uh, animal ritual sacrifice. And so just being at a place where I worked on these cases on behalf of a variety of groups, I really came to, to learn the importance of the principles. Um, and that has come in handy in recent years with everything going on in the religious freedom space that has deeply politicized it. 
Well, here at Multifaith Matters, uh, we advocate religious freedom for all, including those that we disagree with, and especially minority religious traditions. Uh, in the context of America, where we have enjoyed Christian privilege, um, as you know, many segments of the evangelical community have not exactly received American Muslims with open arms, and you've uh, the community has, has experienced a lot of uh, Islamophobia. And yet you are able to come and extend a hand of peace and offer a different way forward, a mutual way of working towards a better way forward. How, how have you been able to overcome those challenges, those, those natural reactions of, of negativity to articulate what you're putting forward in your book? Yeah, so I don't, I mean, I've definitely been successful in some parts of the community um, and less so in, in other parts. And I think I, I first that for the reader in the book, right? Because I think there tends to be a conflation of all evangelicals into one group with respect to their treatment of Muslims and, and with respect to a whole host of other things, including, for example, questions of sexual freedom and LGBTQ rights and, and the treatment of uh, racial minorities and so on and so forth. And in my book, you know, I, I dedicate the entire first part to saying, well, which Christians, right? Like, let's parse this a little bit because in my experience working in religious freedom, um, I've experienced just a wide, a, a wide variety of, of different types of responses. And, you know, I opened the book with um, not just my, you know, my framework on the very contentious um, Hobby Lobby case, but also, you know, take the reader into uh, the National Religious Broadcasters Convention that happened in February 2020, um, you know, before, right before the COVID shutdown. It was one of my last speaking engagements before uh, everything kind of came to a halt. And it's a space of like very, very conservative Christians, most of them white evangelicals. And here I was invited to speak on the main stage about religious freedom for all, including both Christians and Muslims and others. Um, and, you know, I detail in the story how right before my, my talk, I was introduced or, or sort of like somebody else went on stage to introduce Bill Barr, who came right before my talk, and how he made it a point to say that my group is, is, is sponsored Bill Barr's talk, but I did not sponsor the panel that's going to come right after that, but it, because it includes this woman who is what he called me a Sharia supremacist, uh, somebody who essentially what that means is that I'm, a, I'm an American Muslim and American Muslims in the, that framework by definition are a threat to American values and trying to impose Sharia on, over the US constitution and so on and so forth, you know, various ludicrous claims. Um, but Janet Parshall, who's a very big name in sort of conservative talk radio came out right before our panel and made it very clear that those sorts of statements are uh, unacceptable and apologized to me uh, you know, in public. And later I was approached by a number of participants who, who were thankful for my presentation and, and apologetic for, for what had happened. And that to me really kind of exemplified the, the, the divide that I have experienced throughout my religious freedom work, working on cases representing conservative Christians and, and coming to know them as people with, with very deep, deeply held um, religious beliefs and that their religious claims are very much rooted in that deep spirituality, as opposed to what they're often portrayed as. Um, and you know, and and that, and when they see that I understand where they're coming from, that there is a, just a, a sincerity to their religious claims, uh, there's an openness that happens. And those are the sorts of people that I'm hoping to to tell the, the world about in this book, and to say that maybe we should stop conflating them with the people that we find more more problematic. Well, I appreciate your recognition of diversity within evangelicalism. It's something that 
I try to let folks know about. I mean, I, we are living in a post-Trump America and the, uh, the backlash is understandable. Um, I would identify with uh, something. One scholar did some research on our little tribe within the tribe, and he called us reflexive evangelicals. Those of us who are trying to be self-critical, trying to exercise humility and listen and relate to others in a different kind of way. And I appreciate your, your recognizing that there are those of us out there. Um, can you talk about, can you summarize that? What's the main thrust of your book, The Politics of Vulnerability? Well, I think the, the title in you know, The Politics of Vulnerability really kind of is one meant to focus on this question of vulnerability, which I think is um, a human emotion that's in state of being that's kind of like without sort of pejorative lens on it. Because I think that there's versions of that idea that have been talked about in the public space, such as the evangelical persecution complex, um, you know, which definitely makes it seem like it's a problem. It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of like a disorder type thing. It's a, it's a complex, right? Um, a vulnerability is something that's very, very human. Um, and it's something that all humans feel. And I think that we, in some basis upon which different humans of different backgrounds can connect with each other, hopefully. Um, but also the fact that if we don't understand it for the humanness that's there, then, then it gets politicized. Um, and there's a line in the book that I quote from Brene Brown, who's sort of like this very well-known expert on vulnerability, where she said, we have to learn how to feel hurt instead of spread hurt. And so, so much of the book is like, okay, let people who are feeling hurt feel hurt and let's try to understand why they're feeling hurt instead of making them feel bad for feeling that way. Because what this other sort of set of studies tells me uh, that I also sort of explain to the reader, and these are studies on group identity, intergroup bias, the social psychology of intergroup bias, is that when you make people feel bad for feeling bad, essentially for feeling vulnerable, then they feel like they're, they're being threatened. And when they feel threatened, um, they react with hostility. And so if you're really concerned about, you know, too often in, in today, especially in today's um, you know, sort of social paradigm, we tend to focus on like the, host, the hostility piece of it. Like they did this and this was wrong and therefore they must be bad people as opposed to why do they do that? What is it that led them to do that? What are they feeling? And if, and if we actually take the time to understand that, maybe they won't feel the need to react to this in this way. Well, that's another of the things I appreciate about your book. I too have tried to, I, I pursued two grant projects through the Louisville Institute to try and do some research to understand the psychology underneath evangelical negative attitudes towards people and other tradition, uh, religious traditions, particularly Islam. And so I, I found it very interesting. I developed some of my own theories. You explore some of this in your book, what, what kinds of things are going on with conservative evangelicals and other conservative Christians that contributes towards these kinds of biases? Well, on a very sort of like foundational level is this question again of group identity, which, you know, it's a very simple idea. Like we're, we're all part of different groups. There's the in-group and there's the out-group. Um, and we all, you know, so all, when we're part of our group, like it's a source of tremendous um, self-esteem and confidence. Group identity by itself is not a bad thing. It's a very natural human thing to sort of group ourselves in that way. Um, and, you know, as of, in terms of our relationship with the out group, yeah, there's some level of like, you know, where you're favoring your own people type thing, but it's not really a bad thing until there's like high emotions, right? The, the, the social scientists talk about high emotions, things like perception of threat. And so what I do is I, I situate, you know, this dynamics, not just group identity, but also specifically the drivers of intergroup bias, right? Like what 
brings about the hostility. I take that and then I sort of look at what's going on culturally and demographically and try to explain to the reader, like, look, these are the reasons why this group of white conservative evangelicals, which I identify early on in the book as like the sort of relevant group of Christians that I'm talking about for various reasons. I mean, all kinds of reasons, right? During the Trump era, this was the group that got parsed to death. Um, you know, and also because a lot of the polling specifically says that the highest levels of anti-Muslim sentiment come out of this group of white conservative evangelicals. So identified this group, and then I say, well, let's see, what is making them feel under threat? And so I take the reader through the various demographic shifts, both racially uh, and also religiously, such that one, you know, expert in this space has called it the end of white Christian America where white Protestants are, are a minority in the US. And that's very, very different from what they're used to uh, right. in the United States. Um, and I've got the numbers in there. And then, you know, parallel to that, you know, you not only do you have these, this miracle shift, but there's a cultural shift that are happening alongside it and probably because of it in part, um, you know, most poignantly you know, captured in the 2015 US Supreme Court case Obergefell v. Hodges, which, uh, you know, declared the constitutional right to same-sex marriage, which then, you know, has led to all kinds of new anxieties about essentially a post-Christian America and the types of cultures and traditions that they think are very antithetical to their sort of religious vision for the country. Um, and then I, you know, and then I take that and then I layer on some more stuff. I'm like, well, and furthermore, we're also in a time of deep political polarization and political tribalism. Um, such that, you know, we're grouped into either the Republican camp or the Democrat camp. And it's like, you know, th these various political scientists have talked about, you know, these mega identities. You have the conservative mega identity, which are like the Republicans, and then you have the liberal mega identity. And it's mega because it doesn't have to do with just with social policy anymore, but it has to do with everything else, like what you eat and what you drive. Um, you know, it, it gets lumped into that. Your race and your religion gets lumped into that too. And so if you're a white conservative Christian, you're going to be a Republican. And if you're a religious minority, you know, specifically like an American Muslim, and they, they've sort of, American Muslims have been used sort of like as this, um, kind of like a proxy for a lot of these issues. And I talk about that in the book, how Democrats sort of, the Muslim image, you know, like the, the, the sign with the Muslim women in a headscarf was one of the most prominent signs at the Women's March right after Trump's inauguration as a symbol of like opposition to Trump. And Trump did that too. Like he used Muslims as that that opposition, sort of the symbol, right? With the with the travel ban and the various sort of proposals for a Muslim registry and and uh, you know surveillance of mosques and so on and so forth. He made Muslims like that symbol of the other side, the thing that you know Republicans are against. Um, and so you have the symbolism, you know, overlaid onto you know over all these other layers of like intergroup bias and and feelings of threat. And then you take the political tribalism piece of it and say, well, you know, it's a necessary part of my political tribe to oppose everything that's part of the other political tribe. And Muslims absolutely are part of the other political tribe. And so it's, it's, a, it's a function of my group identity to oppose them. In light of all of these things and these challenges that we face, you're suggesting we need to pursue a different way forward. Um, what kinds of suggestions would you have that taps into this politics of vulnerability where we can work together to pursue a different way forward between evangelicals, other Christians, and the Muslim community. 
Well, I mean, first and foremost is that this idea of just sort of recognizing like what are the drivers of the hostility, right? So perceptions of threat are one of them. So the healing necessarily is going to require that you lower perceptions of threat, right? It's just, it just seems like a very obvious thing, but lots of, again, lots of social science that I made sure to, to cite where they say you just have to make the other side feel heard. And this, this goes for both sides, not just, I mean, I focus in the book and in the, by, by virtue of focusing on the Muslim evangelical dynamic, um, it positions it in this way where it's like, well, you know, the in-group, the powerful in-group are the evangelicals and the, the marginalized out-group are these Muslims. But I do make it a point in the healing section to say it's not easy to just put the entire burden of healing on one side, because in their mind, you know, they're, they're thinking of Muslims, for example, as part of this sort of liberal elite group uh, as, a, as, a, as an entity that's like championed by, you know, essentially liberal elites, again, the powerful liberal elites, as a group that has more power in their mind than they do, right? I mean, there's extensive polling data, uh, including recently, uh, just came out March 29th by Gallup, saying that, you know, there's a decline in religion, a huge part of it has to do with people's um, you know, concerns about the politicization of religion, but there's also this fear of backlash. The more there's a decline in religion, the more you're gonna feel, see this backlash, and there's this increasing perception. I, and I cite, like, I think at least five or six different polls where it has been tracked that white evangelicals think that they are more marginalized and more discriminated against uh, than Muslims are, right? So we can sit here and think that the dynamics are the other way around, right? That the Christians are more powerful and the Muslims are not, or that religious minorities are not. But in their minds, it's completely the opposite. And so in order for healing to happen, we have to see the dynamics from both sides. Um, each group has to step up to the plate and say, what is it that we can do? Um, so I think in that respect, you know, my book is very much not about placing blame and, it, and you know, A, I'm already zeroed in on the humanness of everyone involved, but also saying, look, it's not, it's a, it's a shared burden of healing. Um, and each side has to see the other side for their humanness and including their human suffering. Um, you know, I have a chapter in there called Competing Victimhood, where it, it, you know, it sort of tracks um, how a lot of conservative Christians are really quick to dismiss um, anti-Muslim hate crimes and um, and other sort of discrimination and that's facing um, Muslims today because it's always like, you know, what about what about us? You know, what about the things that, and I, and I have faced that question while sitting on stage talking about religious freedom for all. It's kind of like, well, what about us? I mean, you mean us too, like us Christians? I'm like, yeah, I mean you too. Like, if you look <laughs> at my advocacy record, it, that makes it very, very clear. Um, but the fact that, that there's a need to even ask that question makes it clear to me that that a lot of conservatives feel that a discussion of rights and justice and so on is necessarily skewed toward minorities. And I think that's actually true. I, I, I do think it is skewed toward minorities. And I'm saying it needs to be skewed toward all humans because all right. of us suffer and all of us need our rights. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I've been frustrated. And again, I understand the you know, the pendulum swings different directions. And after uh, Trump's loss, uh, the pendulum swinging the opposite direction it was during Trump. And yet, it seems to me if we don't take the difficult path of trying to understand the factors that led to the rise of Trump, the tapping into prejudices, that all we're doing is kicking, kicking that can down the road toward a, a, another leader like him, perhaps uh, a little more savvy, a little more uh, articulate, that can do even more damage than Trump was was able to do. So, I think you're be you're to be commended for 
taking the difficult uh, step of trying to understand the other that that hasn't exactly been uh, cordial and friendly towards your your community. My only hope is that evangelicals can be willing to do the same to try and understand those that they have concerns about in, in order to to move us forward to a different way. So I think your book is is great in that regard. Um, as we draw our conversation to a, a close here, what kind of specific suggestions would you share with evangelicals, other conservative Christians, uh, as well as Muslims who are, are willing to, to look at a different way forward, to make uh, our communities a better place, and our nation a better place to live? Well, you know, it's interesting the way you were talking about the pendulum swinging and like kicking the can down the road um, and how there's a need to actually begin to actually figure out which is exactly the way I was thinking when I was writing this. And, you know, in the, the section where I talk about healing and what can we do to move forward, I mean, I, just, I start off by focusing on this question of self-interest, right? Because I think especially in, in, in the tribal context, the type of context that we're in now, um, you know, self-interest is a strong motivator where no one's really kind of in the mood to be altruistic. Although I do encourage readers to kind of move beyond self-interest uh, to altruism. Before I get there, you know, I, I really focus on on the self-interest portion. I tell myself, for example, liberal readers, that if what you're concerned about is the rights of various marginalized minorities, and you the way you need to be thinking about this is how do we prevent the hostility to begin with, and that's going to lead to the greater protection of these rights. And similarly, I tell the evangelical reader that if you're interested in, for example, religious freedom, which I demonstrate throughout the book, and Everything that I've experienced in my over a decade of work in this space tells me that evangelicals are very much interested in protecting religious freedom. Um, the way that you're going to have to do that is, that, you know, you're going to have to advocate that it be protected for everyone, just by virtue of it being a legal right and the jurisprudence the way that it is requires consistency and coherence. Um, if you don't, if you start carving out exceptions for Muslims or for other groups that you don't like, then those exceptions will just eventually be applied to you. Um, and I think, you know, going back to the NRB context and all these other contexts where I was invited to speak about my first book, it was that it was like among audiences who just understand that. They just get that point. They're like, we literally cannot do this because they will come back to bite us. Um, and so, you know, in terms of moving forward, it's like, you know, let's start with self-interest. Let's start with just like, what is it that this is going to do that will help me get what I want? Um, and then beyond that, you know, I'm hoping that it can move to a place where people do it just because it's the right thing to do. Um, you know, that there's some, you know, level of just like understanding what is right um, and what protects other humans, regardless of what protecting does for us. Well, I think this is a, a fantastic book, and uh, I'm going to encourage uh, listeners to pick up a copy. They'll find a, a link in a description in the podcast notes. And uh, I applaud your work. And I, I know you're very busy with your activism and uh, the legal work that you do. And I just appreciate you carving out the time to have this conversation. Well, thank you, John. Thank you for having me. Uh, my guest has been Asma T. Uden, and she is the author of The Politics of Vulnerability, How to Heal a Muslim Christian, How to Heal Muslim Christian Relations in a Post-Christian America. It's a great book. Click the link and, uh, and pick up your copy and uh, check out the work that she's doing. And uh, this has been the uh, podcast of Multi-Faith Matters, and we thank everyone for listening.